0: I want you to open up your Bibles to number 16. Apologize for taking some time to get up here. I was just in a gospel meeting and the services were a bit different. And so, uh, Danny, you probably understand how that goes a little bit. He probably, uh, has it a little bit harder than I do <laughs> because he's going to so many different, uh, places, different services, uh, numbers chapter 16. It is good to see all of you this morning. It's good to be able to worship with you, um, It's just good to be back. Uh, Number 16 is what we're going to be looking at this morning, looking at Korah's Rebellion. And the reason for this is because, well, we're just continuing on in that narrative series, going through at least one lesson in each book of the Bible. We looked at a couple of lessons in Leviticus already. Now we're going to look at uh, numbers, probably this and one other lesson on this. And this is actually a lesson that I went through during the gospel meeting that allowed me to pick whatever topic I wanted to. And so... Uh, what do you know? I picked the glimpses of Jesus, seeing the shadows of Jesus all throughout the Bible, and this was one of the stories that I. Uh, w- this is one of the passages that I wanted to use, and this is because I think that th- for one thing, this is a story that uh, is talked about in the New Testament, but I think is one of those Old Testament uh, uh, quotation or Old Testament uh, citations that maybe people don't have as good of a grasp on. Like in Jude 11, which we'll look at later on, he talks about Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Uh, Korah's rebellion. Now Cain, that's pretty easy. That's Genesis chapter 4. Most people know that story. Balaam, I'd say a little less people know that story, but at least you have an understanding of, of some of what goes on there. You see that Balaam talks to the donkey. That's pretty memorable. But then you get to something like Korah's rebellion, and and that's where I think it is the most vague, at least Uh, most often for for many Christians. And so I wanted to talk about that, one, to just get the context of what Korah's rebellion looked like, but also how you see, even here, uh, a very strong shadow of Jesus. And just um, some lessons that I think we're supposed to take from this, being that that you do see a shadow, but also when a New Testament writer uses an Old Testament passage, I want to know why they're using it. And what often I think you find is that when the New Testament writer talks about that, if, we, if there's something confusing about that passage in the Old Testament, this helps us clarify what the point always was. And so I want to do that as we go throughout uh, this lesson this morning. And so as we look at Numbers chapter 16, Korah's Rebellion, what I think you find is an emphatic answer from God telling the people of Israel who his chosen priest is, who the one that he has appointed is. Um, And and so uh, as we go throughout this lesson, we're going to look at how God answers that question, answers that test of who is his chosen priest, who is the one that he has appointed himself to lead in this way. Um, But before we get into that, I just want to kind of give a a breakdown of the story uh, as you look at Numbers chapter 16, just somewhat of a brief breakdown. And so beginning in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says now Korah the son of Izhar the son of Kohath the son of Levi with Dathan and Abiram the son of the sons of Eliab and On the son of Peleth sons of Reuben took action and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly men of renown they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them you have gone far enough For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel? To bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, we have, uh, uh, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring a censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also, you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pans. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now, there is a lot, I mean, this is kind of a longer passage, but there is a lot that's going on here. But essentially, what do you have? You have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 men, uh, it says men of renown, uh, men who are following after them. They are leading a rebellion against Moses and Aaron specifically, that's the face, I guess, uh, that they're trying to say is the, the face of their rebellion, Moses and Aaron. But, but Moses gives a test, and we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But it's given to show who is God going to choose. Who has God chosen, really? Not, not who is it going to be in the future, but really who has God already shown? that he has chosen. Who is his person? But you even look at some of the things that the people have said to Moses and Aaron or, or, or David and the as they talk to Moses, saying things like, it's because of you that we're not in the promised land right now. And that's, that's crazy because you look at Numbers uh, chapters 13 and 14, just a couple chapters prior to this. And what you find is, it was not Moses and Aaron... Rather, they were like Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies, saying, we can do this, we can take the land, we can take this land that God has promised us. No matter what the odds, we have God on our side. We can go in and crush them. But the people didn't listen to, to, to those men, the righteous men, the ones that trusted in the Lord. They listened to men really like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And where did that lead them? Well, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies off. And it's during this time, that you see things like even this happen. It's amazing how something like that can happen. And yet you have people forget. Uh, I, I believe that there is probably some time in between uh, that the, their condemnation saying that they're going to have to wonder. And Numbers chapter 16. Either way, no matter how much time has passed, how can, you, how can you see that lesson that God is providing there? And then turn around and say, it's because of you. Don't make the same mistake. But they're given a test. But you move past that beginning in verse 20. After they've been given this test, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, Oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, <coughs> Excuse me. along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up its mouth and it swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And so what happens? Well, because of the... I would say the, the, the leaven of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, all these men, it seems the rest of the congregation of Israel is kind of following after them. Now, maybe tentatively, but they are still following after them to a degree. And it, because of that, God says in verse 21, uh, it, it's time for the judgment to come. Moses and Aaron make intercession for the people, and God allows that, and they depart from the people. And what, what God even gives is not just the test of 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 showing who emphatically who his priest is but he's going to give another test uh, really a sign and evidence to show that this is not just just Moses and Aaron somehow orchestrating something to where okay uh, we're going to make sure that the ground opens up and, and that it seems like it's the judgment of God no this is going to be something that is unquestionable it's undeniable that God is the one who's bringing this judgment And so he gives, I think, some grace here in the fact that he allows them uh, another chance. The fact that he is giving them more evidence to show this really is my answer and and know that this is my answer. Well, continuing beyond that, what is God's answer? In verse 31, it says, As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions— So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, the earth may swallow us up. And so already, that's a pretty strong answer from God. But it doesn't stop with Korodathan and Abiram. But look in verse 35, fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter, and, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be uh, made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy and they shall be a sign to the sons of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which the men who were burned had offered and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah and his company just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. Now there are two different signs, two different tests given already in the story very quickly in the story, God answers both in a very, uh, in a very uh, strong affirmative, with a very strong affirmative. Everything that he said was going to happen, happened. The ground opens up and it swallows Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all, those who, and, and all those with him. Not only that, but it goes to the 250 men that were trying to take this priestly role on themselves with the censors and with their offering. And how do they die? They die a very similar death of Nadab and Abihu who offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. Now here you see another instance where unauthorized and unauthorized offering is, is um, attempted to be given. And what, how is it unauthorized? Well, it's unauthorized because these are men who are not sons of Aaron. They are not priests. And so this is not their job. This is not their role. We'll get more into that in just a moment. But I think it's beautiful um, while terrifying <laughs> at the same time. How God answers, you you want to take this role upon yourself, this is the very means of their destruction. And so God answers both tests and establishes a holy reminder about this rebellion through the the censors that they try to use to worship God. Well, finally, in verse 41, you think it would end there. You think the story would end with, and thus Israel never stepped over the line again, and they never questioned God's authority. And they never grumbled against Aaron and Moses again. Well, unfortunately, as you already know, that's not where the story ends. In verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. (coughs) Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in and, and put it in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation to make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were fourteen thousand seven hundred, besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. And you could just keep reading into chapter 17 and you find even more uh, evidence that God is giving to the people to say, trust me, if you haven't learned your lesson already, Aaron is that priest that I have chosen. Only he is. And with the, with the rod that buds, uh, that blossoms. We won't go into that. I really just want to focus on Numbers chapter 16. It is amazing when you look at a story like this, how strong God's judgment is and yet how thick and deep often it seems like intentionally dense, his people can act like. We're just not going to learn the lesson. We don't care what God... On the next day, they, they, they just forget, apparently, everything that they had seen before. How God had answered so strongly. Well, we have the breakdown of the story. We have an understanding now of what's going on and the progression of uh, the context of the story. Uh, now I just want to focus on specifically how they did rebel. Um, And they did this in a word. uh, It's rejection and it's rejection all throughout. First of all, they rejected God's appointed leaders in number 16. Again, in verse 11, at the very end of verse 11, it says, as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? The people had come against Moses and Aaron, and they had tried to say that it was because of them. They're not in the promised land that they had put themselves above the rest of the congregation. And mind you. I I believe it's Numbers chapter 12 where even Aaron and Miriam, the the siblings of Moses, come and kind of say something similar. That they're kind of jealous of Moses' position. But what does God... God, again, emphasizes... That, that No, Moses is the leader. He's the one that I have chosen to deliver the people. Stephen would even talk about this in Acts chapter 7 in that great sermon. He talks about how Moses is one of the people that God has chosen over the history of Israel and how, unfortunately, they have a repetitive history of rejecting the one that God chooses. And we'll come back to that in, in, uh, later on in the lesson. But, you know, you could maybe the people could look at this and say, listen... We we are putting ourselves against only you, only you and Moses. It's not just that you're holy; it's that all of the congregation is holy. Now, that that's kind of true. All of the congregation was holy. At least they were supposed to be. Remember what we saw in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2. It was an expectation of God. It was a commandment. You be holy as I am holy. And so you know what? To a degree, that's right. They were supposed to be holy. Now, what they were trying to do is go a step beyond and say, just because all of us are supposed to be holy, that means that we all have the same role. And that is not true. They tried to take the priestly position on themselves when that was not allowed. In verse 3, it says again that they assembled together against Moses and Aaron specifically, that they have gone far enough. You look in Exodus chapter 16, chapter 17, Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 20, uh, you see uh, over and over again... This notion that they would grumble against Moses and Aaron. And, and, and every time you see something amazing, something beautiful in Exodus 16, manna comes from heaven. In, in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 17, water from the rock. And you have all of these wonderful, beautiful signs, these blessings from God of his provision. Yet, yet, it tends to not be enough for the people. It is always uh, when, no matter what the story, no matter what you're talking about, whenever you are grumbling against God's appointed leaders, what you find time and time again is that it's not Moses and Aaron that they're really grumbling against. It's God. Now, you know, especially in verses 41 and 42, I think you find that the rest of Israel goes just as far as Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were saying those things. Israel comes forward and says you know, on the next day, listen, it was your fault that these men were put to death. It's not God. Even there, whatever we may say, maybe they were confused. I don't know how they could have been confused. I don't know what their problem was. Either way, confused or not, you don't get to say, well, we're really just against you. They made Moses and Aaron the face of their rebellion. But no, they were rebelling against God. And you don't get to come back and say, well, we really just don't like how you're doing things. And we don't you, No, if that is who God has chosen to lead in such a capacity. Then you're really grumbling against him. And that's an important lesson to remember. Not only that, but they rejected God's specifically appointed method of worship. You think about the service of the tabernacle. We already mentioned that they were trying to bring. Uh, they were, as they were Levites, they had a special inheritance within Israel. In Joshua chapter thirteen, in verse thirty-three, uh, uh, verse thirty-three, as it talks about when they invade and conquer the land, the promised land, finally, the the inheritance is being apportioned uh, out to all of the tribes. But it says in verse thirty-three, the tribe of Levi. Moses did not give an inheritance. And why is that? The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he had promised to them. Let me ask, is that a small thing? Is that a trivial inheritance? You know, I look at something like that, a verse like that, and I think if I was another tribe of Israel, not a part of the tribe of Levi, I would be somewhat envious of that. I would have that notion of the, the Lord is their portion. Instead of the the rest of this promised land. That's beautiful. But what had they done? They depreciated it. They had degraded it in their minds to the point where they just took it for granted. Yes, yes, they could not serve as priests. That's, That's true. Unless you're a son of Aaron, you could not serve as priests. But you still had a beautiful blessing in this relationship with God. How could you ever take that for granted? Yet I think that we sometimes can take our relationship with God for granted. We are all supposed to be holy as our God is holy. And yet just because maybe we don't have a specific role in the church, maybe sometimes we look, uh, look at it in the same way and take it for granted. Well, not only that, numbers 18 in verse 21, numbers 18 and verse 21. I think that some of this instruction, uh, it, it, it seems from the context, it is in um, direct it seems directly connected to the judgment that you just saw in numbers chapter 16. In Numbers 18 and verse 21, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear their sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the sons of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. Again, does that sound like a trivial thing? It's a beautiful blessing that God has given them. And not something that they were supposed to look at and say, oh, well, woe is me. I don't have the way everyone else does. No, this was something that they could look at and, and, and worship God and praise God for. They didn't, however, and that's what led them to the bitterness. That's what led them to ultimately rebelling against God. And so they were trying to take this priestly position upon themselves, and they were destroyed for it. And as I said a moment ago, I think all of this ultimately is defined as a rejection of God's authority. <coughs> As as, as I said a moment ago, you don't get to say, well, Moses and Aaron, they're really the face of... We're really rebelling against them. It's not God we're rebelling against. You don't get to say that. Remember in verse 11, as we already read, how he says, why do you come against... uh, As for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? How does that verse start? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. He makes it very clear. It's not against Aaron or even me that you're rebelling against. You're leading this, this, this uh, silly little thing against not men, but against God, against Jehovah. Against the one who puts you in the position that you're in. The position that you're taking for granted. And so all of this ultimately is a rejection of God. And, and we, need to, we need to take that into account as well. As we look at the context of this passage, of this story. Um, there's many ways that you can reject God's authority. Uh, and often, I don't think it's just simply. Oh, whoops! There. I don't think it's just simply outright rejection of God. It, it happens in steps, steps that lead you to a culmination of, of rebellion. Um, and so, it is ultimately defined as a rejection of God's authority. But as you look at all of this rejection, God reveals how seriously offensive it is to Him. In verses 21 and in verse 25, what you find is God saying exactly the same thing. In each case, after the, after, the signs have been given, or after the first sign has been given to the people that this is going to be the one that they choose, they come and they seem to be um, persuaded by Corridates and Abiram. And God says in verse 21, get away from them. I'm going to consume them immediately. I'm going to consume them all. But they are, uh, Moses and Aaron intercede for the people. God gives mercy. He gives grace where he did not need to. But then you go further than that, and after that next day, when Israel decides they're not going to learn a lesson, they go against Moses and Aaron again, and what does God say? The exact same thing. They did. And w- what I think is interesting about that, the fact that it's the same words used on each day. You, you might look at the first day and think, well, why was it, was it justified that the people were going to be consumed with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the 250 men with them? Was that, would that really be justified of God to take them with, with them? And I think what you find from the next day in verse 45 is, yes, they had the same heart that they did on this day. The fact that they even would follow these men into rebellion, that's a problem. And I think sometimes it's easy to overlook that. And and I know sometimes there's, there's honest concerns or honest questioning, rather, of, well, would it be justified for God to take them? And I think what you find in the story is over time and time again, yes. First of all, God knows best. He knows the heart of the people. And what they prove, what they affirm so strongly, is that they won't change. And that is a part of uh, the reason that they are uh, condemned to wander in the wilderness till that generation dies off. And so that way the next generation can rise and trust in the Lord and take the promised land as they're supposed to. But it's not just back then that this was a serious offense against God. It is always considered a very serious offense. And that's not something that changes even under the new covenant. Well... I want to look specifically at how God answers. Moses gives a test in verse 5. In number 16 in verse 5, he says, "Tomorrow, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. I do think it's interesting the language because Moses would even say it about the Levites, not the priest necessarily. He says to the Levites, you've already been brought near. And I think he's talking about that inheritance that they were overlooking. But now he is speaking of, uh, in verse 5, he's speaking of this is going to be the one who truly is, uh, uh, who truly is the Lord's chosen priest. You don't get to take this upon yourselves. You need to listen to God. And so that's the test given. And so how does he show who his priest is? First of all, he answers with the one who is rejected by his own people. Um, and, And in... Number 16, all throughout, in each case, from Korodathan and Abiram to the people themselves in verse 41, in both cases, Aaron was rejected. And the people, uh, even after seeing such a great thing, would not accept the, the answer that God had given them, that Aaron really is that high priest. Even in Numbers chapter 17, as we already indicated a moment ago, he gives them more evidence to say, I hope you get this at this point. And so he answers with the one who they rejected all along. And you can go to Acts chapter 7 as we looked at in Stephen's uh, sermon saying that this has always been the case. But not only that, he answers in who stands simply, who stands alive before him offering the appropriate worship. All of the parties here, at least on this first day, all of the parties were trying to offer the exact same worship. What God shows is there's only one person who is authorized to do this. And what's the evidence? He's the only one standing alive. The rest of them, they're destroyed in amazing ways. Coriathan and Barim swallowed up by the earth. The rest of them, swallowed up by the very worship that they're trying to uh, that they're trying to offer. Now you could look at this and say, but look, they're just trying to worship God. But they went way too far in trying to put um, in trying to first of all just reject the authority that God had given the priests specifically in this manner, and they're trying to put this on themselves. Second. And so uh, very quickly answers uh, about who that person is simply by who stand alive before them and who has been destroyed by that offering. Not only that, but he answers in who makes atonement for the people. Verses 41 through 48. After the people come against Moses and Aaron again and they say that it is them who has brought this destruction, it is amazing... That when you get to verse 48 and it says that the, the plague was checked, or was it verse 47? Verses 47 and 48, it says that the plague was checked. How is it? How do you know? Because you have Aaron standing in between the dead and the living. Can you imagine being, <laughs> I know people have said this before, but can you, just think back. Use your mind's eye and think back to that moment. Think of the scenery. 14,700 people die from the plague. And you're the one that Aaron just so happened to get to right before the plague got to you. And you look before you in a sea of corpses. Can you imagine the impact of such a scene? I can't imagine someone seeing that and then going going on beyond that day and ever thinking again, am I ever going to question God's authority? Am I ever going to question Moses and Aaron again? No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to concede, I'm going to obey. I'm going to respect and revere and honor God's authority. But, uh, and so he answers with the one who not only lived because he gave the appropriate worship, but he is the only one who could actually uh, bring the atonement for the people. And you even see remnants of that throughout the law as it talks about the high priest being the only one who could come before God and intercede for the whole congregation of the people on the day of atonement. And there's some beautiful connections there. Not only that, in each case, it is the rejected one who makes intercession for the people who are attacking him, who are hostile towards him. Again, in verse 22... And in verses 45 through 48, what you have is, is as soon as God says that he's going to bring judgment on the people, Moses and Aaron each, specifically Aaron, but both of them actually intercede for the people. And they don't want this judgment to come upon the people even though they're attacking. Can you imagine that? It's so easy to become bitter. It is so easy to, to when someone complains about you, and especially when they constantly complain to you, about you, to just think, well, you know what? They deserve that. I'm going to leave them to their vices. I don't want to help at all. I'm not going to lift a finger because of everything they said about me. You know, we could look at that, and we'd almost sometimes, in some situations, think that's almost justified. But with Moses and Aaron, they had such compassion and such love that they interceded for even those people. Now, listen, the judgment of God is, is just. But I think this, is, this makes uh, his judgment even more more beautiful because while it is just and while he does he starts immediately with the plague he is willing to hear he is willing to stop uh, at the intercession of of his chosen high priest well i go through all of this just to say i think that this is where you do see a shadow of jesus how does god answer man's rebellion because man has rebelled against him all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have broken his law. All have trespassed against him and have incurred a debt of death. A penalty that we cannot pay ourselves. How does he answer that rebellion? Ultimately, I think, with uh, his chosen high priest once more. And so, first of all, he, he responds, uh, he, he answers this rebellion man's rebellion with the one who is rejected again by his own people Isaiah 53 in verse 3 Isaiah prophesying about this he was despised and forsaken of man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face he was despised and we did not esteem him and Isaiah 53 what is he talking about but that suffering servant that God is going to send for his people so that so that he can send that judgment upon him to make that atonement and, and in John one and verse eleven, what does it say but that that uh, he was sent to his own and his own did not receive him, so here's a shadow of Jesus I think uh, fulfilled when you get to the life of Christ, not only that but he answers with with, with the one that he is. is emphatically uh, chosen in, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 5 through 8 this is uh, I think hearkening back to Matthew 3 and verse 17 where God s- makes clear that this is his son so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest but he who said to him you are my son, today I have begotten you just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This isn't Jesus coming in and saying, I'm going to put this honor upon myself. No, just like in number 16, it's God who has put this honor on his chosen one. And that, and that man respects and reveres the father. And therefore, the rest are supposed to respect and revere that position of honor that God has put into place. Of that delegated authority and honor. Um, <clears throat> over in Hebrews chapter 9... Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. God has clearly emphasized and answered with the one that he has chosen. And no one gets to point back and say, well, Jesus isn't it. No. He answered with the resurrection from the dead, with Christ beating death, having victory over death. Well, you go even further than that. Uh, well, actually, before we move on, I will just say it wasn't even something that only the Jews could understand. You even find a centurion. You find a Gentile at the cross in Luke chapter 23. Even after Jesus has given his last breath and, and you see the, how creation responds, even a Gentile gets to the point where he says, surely this was an innocent man. This was the Son of God. And so it's not just like only the Jews could understand, even the Gentiles could come to understand this. And so God was very emphatic about that chosen priest. Not only that, but as I said a moment ago, God's judgment uh, is coming to the people, is coming to the is coming to man because of man's rebellion. And the only one who can provide atonement is this one that God is, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And and you look back at number 16 and I think it just makes this even more tangible of how God gives atonement. What's coming but the wrath of God. The just and righteous uh, wrath of God. And who stands in the breach of that wrath? But the high priest that God has provided for us. And it is him. He is the marker where you find the, uh, the distinction between the dead and the living. And you get to choose which side you want to be on you get to choose whether you're going to be a part of that sea of corpses or you're going to be the one who has who who stands behind him as he stands in the breach of God's wrath and I think that's beautiful Uh, in Romans 3 and verse 25 as speaking of Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one uh, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews 2, in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean when we use the word propitiation? It means he is the atonement. He is the only offering. He is the only person who could stand in that place and bring atonement. He's the only appropriate person to do it. He's the only one that has the authority to. And finally, it is the one rejected, as we already indicated about both Aaron and Jesus, the true high priest. While he is being persecuted and while his people have, have put him on the cross, what does Jesus do? But he intercedes for them. He prays for them. In Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So from, from the big shadows to the, little, to the subtle ones, I think all of them are impactful. What they do is help us appreciate the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. And the atonement that he brings, that only he could bring. Now, all that being said, why, why more is it important to see all of this? I think it's important to see Jesus no matter what. But what's more is that I think this is instructive for many reasons. One, it is a picture of respecting God's authority no matter what. It is a picture. It is instructive on respecting God's authority. As we said a moment ago, there, um, just like in, in Israel, in the Old Testament, there were different positions that the people had. You had priests. Those were sons of Aaron. And then under that you had Levites. You had different tribes of Israel. But different tribes, they didn't get to take on the responsibility of the Levites. And and the Levites, incidentally, didn't get to take on the responsibilities of the priests. There were different roles that God had given. Well, in the church, aren't there different roles that we have? You have elders and deacons. Not only that, but you have uh, those who are actually faithful. Those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. And there's responsibilities given there that there's preference that brethren are supposed to give other brethren. Especially over those who are not of the faithful. Who are not saints in the church. Who are not uh, uh, saints of Christ. Who are not Christians themselves. But you go even beyond, uh, specifically thinking um, thinking about the elders. In Hebrews chapter 13, look at what the Hebrew writer says in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now... Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, thinking about that verse, does Numbers 16 help us just with the, the, the emphasis we should put on that kind of demeanor? It was very unprofitable for the people when they didn't respect the ones that God had given that delegated authority. And we are rejecting God's authority when we reject the delegated authority that he's given to certain roles, certain positions and individuals. It's not just e- even uh, when talking about elders and deacons, but you look at a passage like Colossians chapter 3, and, and we won't go there and read it now, but you see in Colossians chapter 3 at the very end of the chapter, in verses 18 through 22, all of these different relationships that he goes through. And what is he saying? Wives, respect your husbands. You need to be submissive to them. Now that's, you know, we've already talked about a couple weeks ago, that can be hard enough with just, with just a husband. But then in Ephesians, he uses the same word when he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. He says, Submit to one another. And not only that, but he goes even further as he talks about Christ and the church being, marriage being the shadow of, of that fulfillment, Christ and the church. And so there are roles all throughout that we need to respect and that we don't just get to throw by the wayside. And so it's a picture of respecting God's authority and delegated authority. Also, I think it's a picture of respecting God's method <clears throat> appointed method of worship. No matter what, when we try to make adjustments to the pattern that God has given us, when we try to make adjustments to the instruction that God has given us, and we're going to talk about this a little bit tonight as we conclude our series that we started, of Eternity Ago on Authority. Whenever we do try to make adjustments to that, it is never for God. Now, the now the David and the Bible, they could come forward and say, listen, All of Israel's holy. And they could try and act like, oh, this is really just a standing up for the little guy. No. No, it it, it wasn't for them. It was for Korah. He wanted to be like a priest. And he didn't have that. And so he was going to take it. And no matter what he said, I'm standing up for the rest of Israel. Wrong. When we add something to God's instructions, when we take away something from God's instructions, you don't get to... That it is never for God, it is specifically for us. And I would just add to that, as you look at number sixteen, these were people who had become bitter because they did not appreciate enough the value of, of the blessings that God had given them. Being Levites, being people who were already brought near to a degree, I think that we have a major blessing as well. And 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 you know especially as Christians. We can take that relationship for granted. Just being Christians, having that relationship with God alone. But you go further than that, what, what are Christians supposed to be? But in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so here, in number 16, that was a mere shadow. And when you get to the church, this is, that's the fulfillment. And what does that mean? You've got to be just as holy and you've got to be just as diligent when it comes to your uh, giving of the offering, when it comes to your duties in this priesthood in this congregation in the church but even as you think about that within the churches we've already indicated there are different roles and positions that we can sometimes uh, participate in whether it be an elder or a deacon or otherwise no matter what position we are in we cannot take it for granted we can't follow after the same pattern of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram because we know where that ends Uh, finally looking over at Jude 11 Jude In verse 11, we only have enough time for the first chapter here, but in Jude in verse 11, Jude, a New Testament writer, refers back to three Old Testament passages. And it's important to have the context so that we understand what he's trying to teach. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Why does he use all of these stories? Well, if you uh, are reading through Jude, what you find is he's talking about those who are trying to creep in unnoticed. He's talking about wolves in sheep's clothing, those who are coming in and trying to disrupt the faith of many. And as he's talking about these kinds of false teachers, these kinds of false brethren who are causing disruption, he says, you need to look at these men from the Old Testament, but you need to know what the, the characteristics of these, men's, of these men look like, and you need to know how they acted, and why is that? So that you can spot these men in the church. You need to know what the motivations of Korah and Balaam were, so that way you can know before too much disruption occurs. You can spot those men out, and you can weed them out, and you can reject those men. That's needed today. And so we need to know what What it was that led Korah and men like Balaam and Cain astray. So that way we can uh, weed those men out and make sure that there aren't people who come in who creep in unnoticed. But also we know the outcome of those men. But today, God, again, only answers, he only offers one high priest. He doesn't offer many. You don't get to say, well, I don't really like what this high priest has to offer. I don't really like what he has to say. And so... uh, Listen, I'm not rejecting God, but I don't want this. There are a lot of people who do that. And not necessarily just say it outrightly, but they do it by application in their life. They don't want to take the teaching that Jesus gives. They don't want to take the teaching that Jesus brings. In John 14 and verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way. He is the only path that leads to salvation. And as we'll say in just a moment, you can choose any other path. But just understand... There's one path that leads to salvation. In Hebrews 10, in verse 11, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now there, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering For sin, And so what does he say? Jesus is that one priest that could actually bring this. And so you need to accept him. Now, why is that so important? Because finally, you can either accept him or you can reject him. But picking back up in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10, skipping down a little bit, what is the outcome? What is the end? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is this story so important for us to understand today? Because when you look at the outcome, it is the same outcome that comes to us. Now, listen: if we reject God, the ground is not going to open up. We can be certain of that. The ground is not going to open up and swallow us whole. But you will go to hell. And let me tell you, what the judgment—that is just a picture in Numbers chapter 16—much more preferable than the culmination. Of what that leads to. What is it talking about? It is a picture of every enemy of God. What the outcome is. You will spend an eternity away from him. In his judgment. And So. The question is. Which path do we want to decide? Which high priest do we want to choose? You may be a Christian. And maybe there's another pattern that you've been following after. Maybe there's. uh, uh, Another path that you have taken. That is really not the way. Not. Christ, but the way of the world, what you find in this story is that that apostasy leads you ultimately to judgment and eternity of judgment with God. Please make sure that you're not walking in the same manner as Korah, with the same motivations, because you know where that's going. But if you're not a Christian, understand that our our high priest has interceded for you, Even while you're in rebellion and even while you're an active enemy, as it says in Romans chapter 5. Don't think, though, that every day day that God blesses you with, every morning that you get to wake up and take another breath of life, that that's a reward for good behavior. Now, maybe it is just a blessing of God's provision. But as you see with the Israelites, by example, it may just be another chance that God, our gracious and merciful Father, is giving you. To take the right path before it's too late so do not tempt the Lord any further it truly is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God as a rebel but it is an overwhelmingly joyful occasion to be able to stand behind the high priest and allow him to make that atonement for us to take away the wrath that is coming would you submit to that high priest are you willing to submit to him to gain that salvation if you're willing let us help you come forward as we stand and as we